Hey everyone, Becca here, round two for this show. Just want to thank everyone for all the positive feedback from the last one and all the criticism. I really take it to heart and try and work things out. Um, like I said, this is just the beginning, so we're still kind of figuring out technical difficulties and, you know, the format of the show. So just want to thank everyone for listening and hopefully you guys enjoy this one. You want to just introduce yourself and say your name and your major and where you're from and all that jazz? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name's Joey Morrison. I grew up in uh, the bustling metropolis of Mile City, Montana. Um, <laughs> spent my whole life there until I graduated from high school and really haven't been back since, actually, okay. come to think of it. I am in my fourth year here at Montana State University studying... Uh, history sets, which set stands for science, the environment, technology, and society. So it's a very interdisciplinary option in the history department where uh, you really get to focus on lots of different issues. And I've taken a focus on uh, the history of science and really looked at history, like glacial, glacial history, history of glaciology, and the way we study glaciers, and then comparing it to modern methods of glaciology, and looked at the history of anatomy and the way we've studied like the the racial deterministic era of of, oh, yeah. of medicine in the United States and and in Europe of uh, particularly with like phrenology like the study of the skull for, yeah. which is where like some interesting phrases like well-rounded come from and things like that that are like Do you want to explain that? <laughs> yeah, so like well-rounded like we say that now is like oh that's a person who's like uh, Put together and they, they they've got lots of different bases and sometimes they're kind of interdisciplinary and things like that and really really good at lots of different things but it came from like the inside of somebody's skull being well-rounded or the outside of somebody's skull being well-rounded so like which, well-shaped right and that meant that someone was intelligent and rather smart. than bumpy right rather than a bumpy skull well i have a bumpy skull so well, <laughs> i mean in, what does that mean <laughs> in the in, yeah in the, the late 18th century you had been I was not well-rounded. You would not have been well-rounded. <laughs> okay. So you're actually not a CBN kid then? I am not a CBN kid. Okay. And for everyone that's listening that doesn't know, CBN here is a major at MSU, Cell Biology and Neuroscience. And it's a major that a lot of the kids going pre-med route take. But So you're not a CBN, so you're history. Yeah, history sets and then anthropology, and I'm focusing on medical anthropology. And then minoring, doing the global health minor, hopefully, fingers crossed, and minoring in biochemistry. So what's the goal then? The goal is uh, I'm very interested in, in health systems and okay. how we build systems and what, which systems work for who and, and most interested in who uh, is not served by health systems. So paying particular attention to oftentimes low-income areas where the burden of disease isn't addressed uh, in a very holistic way and they're limited by resources. So trying to focus on systems that make really effective use of scarce resources and, and looking at the lived experiences of patients in those sorts of areas, um, which is what's brought me to looking at Zambia, looking particularly at the way those with cancer experience treatment and okay. things like that. So yours is kind of like how, how are these underdeveloped communities how, how is medicine involved in them, and how do patients access it? Right, and what sort of barriers are they encountering? Like, for example, uh, and this is a, an infectious disease example, but let's say you have a, a family with two, with two able adults, mm -hmm. um, 
and like five kids, right. which is not, which is very common right. in, in sub-Saharan Africa, if both parents are present. And so this is, uh, to use an example where both parents are present, and then we do an outreach and find out that one of them has HIV. Now they have to go into treatment, and sometimes the treatment at the beginning, at the onset, is uh, once a week or once a month. And let's say in that process, they end up losing their job. Um, so now you're suddenly, you're treating this one person for their disease, but you've now crippled this family mm-hmm. where in communities where unemployment can be as high as, mm-hmm. as like 20 to 40%. So that job is extremely valuable, and now they've just lost it because they're having to be treated. So looking at those sorts of, I mean, in my opinion, that's a failure. Like that's a, that's a systemic failure. Because where, you're, you're causing a complication right. that you know, that is affecting way more people than just having one person having a disease. It's now affecting this whole family because of this secondary non-medical complication from treatment. Right, right. And it's not like, it's not like, oh, we shouldn't, that person shouldn't have been treated. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe there should have been some more foresight in trying to think of, and and this is a a real example, Um, and, and there are certainly many others that are more complicated than this, and very culturally competent and culturally informed physicians are needed to be able to to be able to address these sorts of issues, and that's what I'm very interested in. Cool. So, it's important for physicians to be aware of almost a holistic cultural sense. Like they need to be well versed in the culture, and not just like single minded into the scope of medicine, but kind of have multiple foresight into community and like that family and. I guess we don't think about that here in the U.S. because it's like if you get sick, there's, you know, there's people that can take care of you, or it's not that big of a deal, or you have some savings, or right. And and there is a, a significant challenge, and it's it's certainly the dominant thought in in life sciences right now, and it's it's a, as a very reductionist approach that we are sort of these machines, and mm-hmm. if something's wrong, then you just fix that part of the machine, and then suddenly it's back, but as is becoming more and more common practice to learn for life sciences that humans are these very dynamic uh, entities that have all sorts of different experiences and all sorts of different factors contributing to them and their beliefs on how they want to take their medicine or how they want to partake in the healthcare system whether or whether they do at all. And these sorts of things need to be considered. I mean, uh, there's a uh, actually, a professor here at, at MSU, Dr. Brett Walker, who just wrote a book called Family History of Illness that is a very transparent and very vulnerable book uh, that's kind of autobiographical, wherein he describes humans as porous, as like an entity in which uh, we are kind of leaking out into our world around us, but also that world is exchanging with us mm-hmm. and changing the way that we're experiencing the world, and particularly with like the rise in research into like epigenetics mm-hmm. and the way in which uh, our environment might be affecting our our bodies in ways that we our biology, our, yeah. g- our genome, like, which like is literally so, what we pass on, which is so cool to me. Like that just blows my mind in a sense, and I think it'll be so interesting to see especially with the refugee crisis that's going on right now, the chronic effects of stress on genes and how that is affecting like the next couple generations Definitely. after, you know, in the next couple, 10 years or so. It, it in many ways makes uh, all of our health focuses right now that much more like hastened 
right. uh, in a way as as thinking the people that are in, in poverty right now, whether in the United States or in or in a refugee camp, um, that they are potentially suffering not only from the difficulty of transgenerational mobility to like be able to leave their class and, and get ahead mm-hmm. and things like that that are totally economic, but also maybe suffering from like almost a, a health equity gap, mm-hmm. similar to a socioeconomic gap, where their health might be getting compromised generation by generation by generation as they're having to eat um, poor, poor quality food because it's what's accessible and cheap, um, or just culturally what they've been designed or what they've been told, mm-hmm. um, convinced is what they eat and seeing the way that that's going to compound over yeah. potentially generations. It'll, it'll, I want to do like a study, like all these studies I want to do, but I want to do a study that looks at brain development in successive generations of poverty. Because, mm-hmm. like, imagine, so imagine, like, like omega 3s obviously are a big deal for brain health. And if you are in poverty, chances are is you're not getting enough. Right. And to see how that affects the epigenetics and even the, you know, fetal development. Um, I think that would be something that's so cool to look at. But so, how did you find yourself in Zambia? Okay, it's it's. A I really, said that right. It's not. You did. Okay, it was okay. Zambia. It was Zambia. It's not Zimbabwe. It was not Zimbabwe. <laughs> okay. They're very close. Um, so, about probably last December, I I was working at the MSU Leadership Institute, and a board member of this clinic lives here in Bozeman. And her brother founded this clinic in Zambia. What's, the, what's the name? Of the, the the, yeah, uh, the clinic is called Tiny Tim and Friends, and okay. it's and it's based on this the doctor um, adopting a child of of orphan parent or of these parents that were knew they were they were not going to be able to take care of this child, and asked him to adopt their child, and and he did, and his name was Doctor Tim Mead, and he passed away. Uh, last September, two Septembers ago. Holy cow, it's 2018. <laughs> it's 2018, um, September 2016, he passed away. And they reached out and asked my boss, uh, Dr. Carmen, or not Dr. Carmen McSpadden, just Carmen McSpadden, who is the director of the MSU Leadership Institute. Hey, like, we're now transitioning. We're going to try to get, we're going to be moving to have a new director and things like that, knowing that there's a lot of challenges for nonprofits when they have to shift shift from a founder to a new director. And Carmen uh, was like, well, actually, I mean, we could give you, like, brochures and pamphlets and things like that and how to do that, but actually I'm just going to, like, have this, have this like, dumb kid uh, help you guys out. And he's just going to, he'll Skype with you guys and he'll work through on... And that on, dumb kid is you. That dumb kid is me. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, obviously you are somewhat intelligent because... You I know. assure you, I assure you it is all... All a ploy. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I, I helped out. I led a team of, of students here at MSU to uh, provide organizational support, which looked like helping out with job descriptions, with creating organizational charts, with looking through their like 45 page long policy and procedure handbook that hadn't been looked at in like six years that was riddled with typos and irrelevant components of their policies. Uh, and then after, after that, started doing uh, management trainings on what different practices of management look like that were super westernized, which I've now started to realize is like, I still have a bit of a dilemma about that, that form of, 
um, the service I provide is like very uh, culturally, potentially culturally irrelevant to them. Um, that a lot of it was very was very westernized. Um, things like from the Harvard Business Review is where a lot of it was being informed by. So after doing like four or five of these these Skype trainings, essentially from spanning ten thousand miles, uh, they were like, "Well, why don't, why don't you come over?" Kind of thing. Like, why don't you come over here? And I was like, "Holy crap, that'd be awesome!" Never been outside the United States, um, and then. Uh, by the generosity of an anonymous donor, um, I was fully funded to go over to Zambia and spent about seven weeks um, providing these sorts of trainings and resources there um, on the ground and in, in collaboration with them and, and working to try to develop systems and structures that would be able to last long after I'd left. Um, wow. So give them tools and things like that. In their, by, and it's, it's very important to me that it was... Uh, culturally relevant so yeah. it was all like it was them reaching out and saying well I we want to focus on this issue and then I come up with something um, often in collaboration with staff members there so that it's as relevant and as impactful as possible um, and actually attainable exactly like yeah it's just interesting how many how many components of just how we're talking use idiomatic expressions that are very Americanized or westernized that were totally not relevant, not, not helpful. Not helpful at all. Wow. So basically, someone was just like, they were like, hey, you want to come over? And you're like, sure, I don't know how. Yeah. And like, just by chance, and I was like, here, let's go. Like, here's all this money, like, whatever, anonymous donor, go kid. And and you went, and you were able to like re- make real impact there. Yeah, I, I am convinced I, I did absolutely nothing. I mean, okay. as, as, as I think is what... And, and but why, why is that? Why do you think that? I think there's a, a, there's a, a significant burden for a nonprofit to have to entertain, or a nonprofit in, in a low-income area, particularly um, non-American, non-European, mm-hmm. to in some ways entertain the American volunteer. And so there is, a, a, as far as I can tell, a fairly significant burden mm. to have to take care of them. So I, I tried my best to provide something that I think will last. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there were, there were, there'd be days where um, I would, I'd be there for, I'd be at the clinic for eight or nine hours and would do absolutely nothing. Um, I would just work on work relevant to the Leadership Institute because I, I just mm. taken over a management position there. Um, knowing that I really wasn't making that much of an impact. And I had actually, I had, I've talked with many people that have done similar work around the world, and that, that seems to be often the case, that we, we always want to go and do these beautiful, amazing things, often with good intentions, but perhaps um, with some delusions of grandeur, uh, that are nonetheless positive at times, you know. Um, but I, I even have a reluctance to say I did I did work okay. in Zambia. Okay. Like I I mean I I I disproportionately benefited from okay. the experience. Okay. But you I think I think you can't sell yourself short because you did going there I think gives people a hope that people do care. And it kind of gives them like this like, oh someone's giving us attention, like there is a possibility of getting better here and improving the situation. 
And if anything, maybe you going there instigated them to, to look at things differently or try and approach things differently through their own power. Plus, you were, like, you're going back this summer, if I understand, right? right? So, I mean, obviously you weren't that terrible. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So, what are you, so what's this summer going to look like compared to last? And are you going to try and do new things? Or are you going to take a totally different approach? Or... Um, so there were a lot of things that I was I was commended for while I was there. So I'm going to try to keep those things. Which that, were? Like, which were things like uh, not staying with other expats and things like that. Like, um, And for those that haven't heard the term before, like expats are, are expatriates. So people living in a country that aren't from that country. So like I could have easily just lived with other Americans the whole time or lived with other Europeans. They would have been more comfortable, um, but I wouldn't have learned as much. And so which, did you you stayed with Zam, Zambians? I stayed in a in a hostel that was uh, there there were like passing Americans, passing Europeans, but right. um, a lot of uh, neighboring countries. Okay. Um, for people coming through for work. Cool. Um, but I mean, I I just I tried my best to never like use that as a crutch to mm-hmm. always always try to get out in the community community, mm-hmm. um, which say which tiny Tim and friends the the staff there. We're excited about because they've in the past they've had people who, even to send the, to send them on like oh I need you to run over to this clinic they'd be like oh I have no idea how to get there because mm. they would have no idea they didn't know their way around town mm. they didn't know how to use public transportation things so those are the sorts of things that I hope I'm trying to do to make myself as 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 light of a burden as possible mm-hmm. and I think um, just to just to quickly interrupt you I guess but I think that's something a lot of people in foreign countries. Specifically, if they're going there for volunteer work or healthcare, come into trouble with is they get there with all this great like, oh my gosh, we're gonna change everything. Like, I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna help. Like, I'm gonna volunteer. I'm really gonna make an impact. And then they get there, and the technical and logistical aspect of everything just shuts them down within the first mm-hmm. week. And they're like, I can't get from point A to point B. Also, I can't speak the language, so I can't interact with patients. Yeah. Also, the doctors don't want any of my advice. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, I just know from like personal experience, even it's just so difficult when you're in a place that's completely new. Um, totally. So props to you for, for figuring it out and being like, how do I do this and attacking the problem? Like it was, I mean, I feel like I just didn't even know any better Yeah. <laughs> as like having, <laughs> having absolutely no expectation and doing no research on like how it, what, it, what it's like to be safe internationally or Maybe even. that's why they sent you. Yeah, they're like, this, guy, this guy's just going to throw himself yeah. face first and everything. Um, but so when I was going last summer, I had the intention of doing a research project at looking at the lived experiences of, of the patients of this clinic. Um, because Time Tube and Friends does a lot of really awesome work as far as being a uh, almost head and shoulders above its competition in, the, in some ways. And it's weird to use the word competition because, like, everybody's there just to treat HIV, right. so it's not necessarily... Other, other similar yeah, clinics. Other other HIV NGOs there in, uh, in Lusaka. Um, things like providing nutritional support, where sometimes you're giving children uh, all of their first or second line antiretrovirals mm-hmm. and... It's, it doesn't do anything. And then you're like, well, it must be because, like some, some clinics jump to the conclusion that they're not adhering, that they're mm-hmm. not taking their medication at the right mm-hmm. times. Um, but then uh, 
Tiny Jim and Friends investigated and found like, well, actually, it's because antiretrovirals don't work too well if you're starving. You know, like it doesn't doesn't really do the trick. So they they kind of figured that out. They right. were able to connect those dots. Right, and wow. then began to provide nutritional support. And then they found, well, there's still some barriers that, that people were experiencing and then started providing psychosocial, psycho, psychosocial support and, and counseling to those going through this process because it can be difficult, you know, to, to yeah. recognize uh, or to, to be dutiful and, and committed to taking your medications all the time and dealing with the side effects, which can be awful for some and, and almost non-existent for others and making sure you're taking them all at the right time and everything like that. So that those, that three-pronged approach, providing the, the medical support, the nutritional support, and the, the psychosocial support, I think, uh, and the success that Tiny Tim and Friends has had, I think, uh, is an indicator of that recognition of, of humans as a porous yeah. creature. So it kind of is like a perfect example that here in America we should be focusing on the whole yes. patient, like yes. the mind, body, soul. Right. Nutrition, not just like, oh, yeah, you have cancer, like, let's get you on chemo. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and it's interesting, is it seems like the more, this is derailing from the, the Zambia stuff, but... It's okay. The, uh, <laughs> it seems like when something is more challenging, a more challenging disease, um, people do often get more of that care. But if it's something like an ER visit, even right. though it could be very serious and right. traumatic for that, that patient, sometimes right. they're just kind of kicked out pretty quickly. Right, yeah. Um... Yeah, maybe that's because the more serious, life-threatening, difficult... You know, any disease is kind of like a puzzle, mm-hmm. and each patient is a variation of that puzzle, and eventually you get stuck with, like, HIV or cancer, and you have to... That that difficulty kind of instigates innovation for treatment, and, um, yeah, so I think, like, this example is a perfect example of that, Anyway, so to go back to Zambia. Back to Zambia. So what are you doing this summer? So last summer, it was kind of difficult. Oh, it was yeah, brand yeah. new. So this summer, you kind of have like, you know, you have one summer under your belt. You kind of know how things work. And, and it seems like you have a really nice sense of self-criticism in a good way where you are like, I don't really think I did anything, but you're not giving up. And so what do you think, what do you, think you can improve on or what do you hope to do or... I guess I, I, I'll finish the, this part for last summer because okay. it is relevant to what okay. I'm going to do this summer. So I was going to do this research into, into HIV and got through the, the MSU hurdles. I got funding to do the research. I got IRB approval to do the research, but found out just about a month before, before I was going to leave that the University of Zambia has to give their... IRB equivalent approval Dang it. and it is a very very long process Dang it. and required lots of different things that I absolutely couldn't do just in that in that short of time so I didn't get to do it but this time knowing all those hoops I have to jump through right. um, it won't be as, as much of an issue so this time I'm going to look at similar similar barriers um, looking at the lived experiences of those with cancer as I've really started to become much more interested in non-communicable diseases, just mm-hmm. as uh, it's now the, it's globally the number one killer in the world. Uh, about one, one and a quarter people die every second of a non-communicable disease. Um, wow. just, over, just over 40 million a year. And wow. that number is going up every year. 
And so, which is sometimes tough for people to, to acknowledge as like, what, we should be getting better kind of thing. But yeah. it, it's, it's that we're doing really good at treating things like malaria and HIV and, and other infectious diseases and all these tropical diseases that we've been hearing mm-hmm. all about. But then as, as nations develop and they become wealthier and they, they demographically transition to wealthier nations with better infrastructure and things like that, the burden shifts from infectious diseases over towards non-communicable diseases. And there's a lot of these countries in Southern Africa that are now in sort of that double burden phase where they're still experiencing non-communicable diseases. Zambia, I think over dis- from like December to mid-early February, was in a state of emergency for a cholera outbreak and things like that. So it's still like infectious diseases are still very present, but non-communicable diseases are on the rise. I don't know the numbers offhand, but it, it the the low-income countries are going to experience the the most significant rise in non-communicable disease burden. Right. So as a result, I thought, well, I would like to look at what sort of barriers there are already present there. Aside from the things like they don't have enough money, they don't have enough physicians, uh, but what are they doing right now that's working that isn't working? Um, there's a lot of areas where it's an outreach problem, just an education problem of like people don't know that they have cancers so they don't know to go in and things like that, um, which is of course the case everywhere in the world. I mean, we don't necessarily get sick and then know instinctively, mm-hmm. oh, we have cancer yeah. now. Um, Especially with non-communicable, can you say it? Non-communicable diseases? Yes, thanks. NCDs. <laughs> yes, NCDs. Because um, they're not very, you know, they're not symptomatic, they're not acute, right. they're chronic, long-term, and they're usually based off of life choices and the accumulation and compounded interest of a disease, so to say. Right. So to say, so. Or from like a disease that you had and then it went away. Right, you know, right. It's like a leftover thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is like perfect review for our global, <laughs> our global yes, health test coming yes. up, so. Um, I think you're going to ace it, so. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Uh, so there are, those are the sorts of things I'm very interested in, is looking at how they're being, how patients are being treated, where they might be missing each other, and, and maybe to some that seems like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, they're, they're Zambians treating other Zambians, like they're culturally, they're going to match up. It's like, here in the United States, I mean, physician interests, physician motivations, physicians, the, the way in which a physician wants to treat a patient does not always align with how the patient wants to be treated or how the patient will best receive treatment. So there's still even, there's the mis, that, that misalignment everywhere in the world. Um, and to me, the greatest need for realigning that, uh, to keep that same analogy going, is in low-income areas where uh, there have been some studies done where like 80% of people that that went into a clinic and found out they had cancer, it was stage four. And they, wow. There was nothing that could be done. Okay. So you going there this summer then, so you're going to kind of turn away from HIV, go towards more towards cancer, mm-hmm. and you, what do you, like, you're going to hope to find that, you know, those barriers to patient care or the cultural barriers to patient care, or is there something specific that There's, you're kind it's, of looking at? It's just sort of an evaluation. Of, okay. It, it might, I might totally find out that, uh, and this is in collaboration with the, ho- with right. the cancer hospital there. Wow. Um, that, are, that are still uh, un, they're still reluctant on whether they, 
want to bring me or not. Oh my gosh, presumably bring for, you. <laughs> I mean, it's presumably for the same reasons as that I that I talked about earlier. It's like there is a burden, you know. I mean, I'll I'll be to make sure the, you're safe, to make sure you're fed, to make sure you and, get something out of it. And that I want to interview, I want to interview patients, and yeah. I don't speak Nyanja or right. Bemba or any of the other like twenty languages that are spoken There's in the region. Languages? Um, there's a lot of languages. Like it's, it's. What are some of the names? What did you say they were? Nyanja is a is a really common one spoken, pretty much only in Lusaka, and then Bemba is one that's spoken more widely throughout Zambia okay. as a whole. Um, but just about everybody in Lusaka will know Nyanja. Okay, it sounds like you're saying ninja. Yeah, it's like N Y A N G E. Nyanja. Nyanja. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm probably. Mispronouncing like a, it. Like a Mzungu. And Mzungu means like white dude. Okay. Um, well. In Nyanja. Um, but so, I mean, that's a challenge, you know. That, yeah. that means they're going to have to have a physician there or a, or a social worker, somebody there with to me the whole time to translate. And, yeah. Particularly that for most people, most uh, people in, in Lusaka speak English. But it's the the poorer the the community the less likely they are to speak mm-hmm. English and those are often the people being treated in these clinics yeah um, I guess that's probably not the same demographic as uh, for this cancer hospital but that was the case for Tiny Tim and Friends yeah okay wow you should just tell them like hey like I'm coming back like this is gonna be I'm I'm planning this for the long haul like I'm committed right like, just bring me back and and I promise I'll come back next year. And, no. and that is the hope, is that after, th- there's a lot of clinics, uh, cancer clinics specifically throughout yeah. Southern Africa that like want a researcher to come yeah. and work with them, but they just like, they're sick of the two month long. Yeah, it'd be so cool. Oh my gosh, maybe the Leadership Institute could do this. Or I was, I've been thinking about starting a club here on MSU that's focused on global health and, and community health, and that fosters students outreach to, you know, like, because all these kids wanted to go help in Greece mm-hmm. and um, Turkey and Syria with the refugees, refugees, but there's no streamlined process to get students to, to go volunteer. And a lot of times these students are highly qualified. Mm-hmm. You know, they have research background, they have medical training, you know, and it's, it's a win-win situation, really, if you could figure out how to do it. But I think if we could make a club on campus that facilitates that, specifically with, like, specifically with wanting to have that volunteer be continuous, so it's like, like every year they know okay from July to August these volunteers come and help mm-hmm. us, and we know it's the same group. It may be different students, but we know we're gonna see some of the same students two or three years in a row, and it's gonna be the same paradigm. And you build this cohesive relationship with these clinics, and. Um, yeah, maybe that's something the Leadership Institute can work on, or we can so, do it as a side project, I don't right. know. So, interesting that you bring that up. So, there's actually an organization on campus called the Om Prakash at MSU. Okay. Um, and the Om Prakash is an organization... Om, Om Prakash? Om Prakash, okay, yeah. all these it's, weird acronyms and yes. words, all right. Uh, so, Om Prakash is it's actually a, a not super uncommon uh, Indian name. Um, and... So there's this organization called Om Prakash, uh, named after this guy, 
Um, I won't get into the, the origin okay. story of the name. Okay. But you, the, you're a historian, so you like yeah. go through, like you're like, all right, well, this is what Timmy Tim was, and like I, this right. is all about history, and like so let me break it down for you. Like this is what well-rounded means and stuff like that. Right. But anyway. It may be a little long-winded at times. <laughs> it's okay. There's um, this organization. Yeah, so Om Prakash is uh, it's this international uh, volunteering and, and global service NGO Uh they're a nonprofit based, sort of based in Seattle. There's, they're very uh, new power. Like they're very uh, decentralized. They're kind of all over the place. Cool. Um, but uh, this this student organization just put uh, about sixteen students through this curriculum that pushes them to think about their their actions going abroad and thinking about what it means to cross a border and recognizing travel in and of itself as a political act and thinking about how we can do that more ethically and raising critical consciousness as to what that looks like. Um, but additionally, Om Prakash not only provides this curriculum, but also provides a network of like about 187 partners in 41 different countries that allows volunteers to just connect straight to them. In a way, it's almost like a, like a Craigslist for international volunteering. Cool. It's like a... They put up, oh, we're a healthcare NGO and we need six volunteers between this and this date. Um, and then someone just applies and then they interview with them and it's a vetted, all the NGOs apply to be a part of this network. So there is a vetting process to become part of this 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 network. And it's, yeah, it's a really, really awesome organization. Um, and I we're, we're now working with uh, a couple departments on campus to try to make that course more accessible, more available for students, potentially offer credit, um, and hoping to further expand this opportunity. Um, I meant to present to it in several classes this semester, but I just wasn't sure what it was going to look like yeah. um, in the fall. But it looks like it's going to be alive and well. But it, it, I think it's addressing exactly that issue of like, there are so many students, particularly pre-medicine students, that feel a significant pressure that to stand out from their competitors to get into med school, they need to go out and do something right. out in, in the world. And sometimes it's unethical, yeah. um, and they're doing things they, they ought not to be doing, and sometimes it's awesome and yeah. totally transformative. Um, Plus I also think like it's just like, if you're serious about going into medicine, you just kind of have that ingrained in your personality. Right. Where you're like, I see suffering and I am like chomping at the bit to go like help people. Yeah, to address Like this is what I want to do with my life. And you're like, oh my gosh, just give me an opportunity to go help someone, please. And um, you know, like it happens to me almost on a daily basis. I'm like, okay, where can I go? And it's like, okay, no, like just wait, like chill. And that's so cool though. That's really, that's good to know that we have that. Yeah, and and hopefully it will really hit the ground running next year. Yeah. and there's, there's a ton of these organizations on campus. There's there's now like a global health club. I'm not really sure um, what they've done this semester, but it seems like they're, they've got great leadership and it should be really cool. And then there's Engineers Without Borders. And now there's Give, which is, yeah, in, an interesting is. organization. Okay. Uh, they're another international volunteering okay, organization. Cool. But cool. ethically maybe kind of okay. shaky. Right. Um, but yeah, it's th- so there's lots of opportunities to do that kind of stuff. It's definitely uh, there's still barriers for yeah. sure, like cost. And yeah. So what are some of the? Maybe you can enlighten us. So you talked a lot about the research aspect. Light. Yeah, maybe you can enlighten us Ooh. on um on some of the like personal 
trials or you know issues you came up with while you were volunteering you know like was it was that was for instance was it really hard because you were white and so immediately there was this prejudice wherever you were in the room or did you find people treated you different or did you find that doctors and um, healthcare providers and patients didn't want to authentically interact with you because you weren't um, Zambian? There were, there was a, a mixed bag for sure. There was, there were times where I was predicted to be way more qualified than I was. Mm-hmm. And I had to like reconvince them like, actually no, like I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I really can't, mm-hmm. I can't help out in this way. Um, two other times where they were like, well, they actually feel kind of uncomfortable with you being in the room for this. Um, could you step out? Mm-hmm. And so there's there's all sorts of different things like that. And I mean, I was never there for anything very intimate. It was always things like going over uh, just basic healthcare. Yeah, chart. yeah. Like this is this is how the treatment works, kind of thing. But they would just feel like kind of weird. Like what's this what's this Mzungu doing here? Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, so th- it, in all, I don't think it really was that much as much of a barrier as I sort of expected um I sort of I did expect to be in some ways ostracized as being like the the dumb white dude that was hanging out everywhere <laughs> right um, but I didn't experience that very much I got heckled a lot like a lot of jokes and like how so like just did you, like did you understand them or did you just know they were joking about you because they were laughing sometimes I mean like I would hear them say mzungu like in the middle of a oh, long God. sentence so that I like <laughs> and I mean I look around and there's an it's me. Like, right? Uh, You're like, there's like no that. other white people. Um, it, but, like, as soon as I started, like, learning how to say some phrases, that was immediately, like, this guy's, this guy's in. Um, that, that was definitely really important for a lot of people. Um, what are some of the phrases? Like, Malka Blanche means, like, uh, how are you? And it also means, like, good morning. And then okay. somebody, like, if somebody, when I was walking down the street, these guys would heckle me all the time. They'd be like, Marco Blanche. And I was like, oh, Buena Blanche. Like, that means, like, it's like, oh, I'm doing well. How are you? And they were kind of like, oh, what? That guy just said Damn. it. Damn. So I said it back, <laughs> um, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that was always great. Um, I also learned that there's a particular stereotype that Americans are very hard drinkers. And so whenever I went out with anybody, it was always like, we're gonna drink like Americans. There was a few a few instances of that, and I was like, I don't know if we're. I mean, I don't think that's something to. Maybe for <laughs> maybe for Montanan. Yes. Because yes. there was drinking culture here, but maybe not Americans. Yeah, but I mean, they, they yeah nobody knew where Montana was. Yeah. <laughs> they were always like it was always Canada. New York City or uh, <laughs> New York City or Los Angeles. <laughs> Are you close to either of those? I'm like no. Dead in the middle, away from them both. Yeah. Okay. A lot of explaining the geography of the United States, okay. like. Actually, to be, I mean, <laughs> the United States is like 50 Zambias. Like, yeah. <laughs> putting that in perspective was wow. always kind of fun. But, okay, so we were talking about this earlier. So Montana has, you know, we have more cows than people mm-hmm. is kind of the term. And, like, we only have a million people maybe in the state. How many people live in Zambia? Zambia's got, a, like, 16.2 million. 16.2 million? Yeah. I can't even like. They yeah. And, they and have, how big is it? How many like how like in comparison? It's a little. It's a bit bigger than Montana in certain okay. area. Um, but it's like, you know, it's maybe like Montana and Idaho. Yeah. With yeah. sixteen million people. Yeah, it's definitely, and it's super dense. Like Lusaka. 
I think have like two point two million people in in the entire like metropolitan area kind of uh, definition. Um, I mean, Zambia had more people with HIV than we have people in Montana. Um, oh my gosh! So there, so there's, imagine the state of Montana infected with HIV plus some. Yeah, yeah. But then I mean, as a ratio to the United States, we I mean, I guess I we it'd be like forty two million people. Wow. Uh, if it was the same percentage, okay. um, they've got roughly fourteen percent. Wow. Uh, HIV positive, and a lot of them uh, are on antiretrovirals. So okay. there's, they're like the ninety 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 like. Cool. Zambia is not quite there yet, okay. but they're definitely making a lot of good progress. Right. And the ninety 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 um, is kind of the WHO's um, projected goal to have ninety percent of people with HIV know they have HIV, to have ninety percent of the people who know they have HIV be on antiretroviral medication, mm-hmm. and to have ninety percent of those people. To have to have viral suppression. To have viral suppression, so so adequate treatment. Yeah, to be pretty much be able to be like yeah. everybody else. Yeah. Not really experience. Which is kind of an aggressive because I think we're only at sixty percent, and. But of those, I think I think it was something like eighty-two percent, and I think many countries are higher than that. Okay. Uh, of the the last ninety of okay. the number of people who are on antiretrovirals, where it's effective. Right. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean. Was there. Was there as much as a, as much stigma? Was there as much stigmatization there as there was here in the U.S. to have HIV? Because here, because here it has a different connotation Definitely. than there. Um, here it's not, or over in Zambia, it's definitely. There still is a lot of, outreach campaigning to okay. try to get people to just recognize that it's it's not a big deal. Um, there still is some barriers of like of people recognizing clinics as like witchcraft, um, and so the whole and it consequently diseases associated with that are kind of BS and and so that's that's like that's an example of a cultural barrier right okay. there. Um, and is that very prominent? Are there people that are like, no, like Western medicine is not good. It's it's I don't know how to how to gauge its prominence, but I mean I encountered it. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, so there is, there there is a lot of a lot of pushback from that, which is a significant challenge in in uh, in trying to address that. And then also, there's just some areas that are so dangerous um, that even like tiny timber friends, we, we would do outreaches where we go, we just basically hire a bunch of like mercenary community health workers and drive some buses right in the middle of a compound and everybody just goes out and just tests whoever is willing to be tested so they can know their status right away. And there are some communities where it's just too dangerous to do that. Okay. And so these are the types of communities that it's going to be very, very hard mm-hmm. to address that, address that as an issue. Because mm-hmm. um, then these compounds are, and a compound is, is, is like a neighborhood. Okay. Like that's just the, the term for a neighborhood in a way. Um, and some of these compounds are just, are, are, it'll just be very, very challenging to address these needs in a robust and sustainable way that really makes a big change. That'll make them, over time, more accessible to mm-hmm. give them greater access to healthcare. Yeah. 
And that's when, like, you're kind of dealing with the lesser of two evils because you're going in there and trying to change a culture, you know, and trying to change a neighborhood's mentality towards medicine, but also at the same time that medicine might not be what they want right. treatment for or with. And, and there is a lot of, uh, I mean, every you can't drive anywhere in Lusaka for more than a minute without seeing a big billboard financed by the Ministry of Health that says, like, know your status. Okay. Like, it's just everywhere. Cool. Constantly talked about. Um, cool. But it's still very stigmatized. I mean, there's still a lot of challenge in trying to get yeah. trying to get that. Yeah. Um, everybody to partake. That was my, that. so that kind of leads into my, one of my other questions I have is, how do you, so transportation is a huge issue, you know, especially when you're, when you're not living, when you're living abroad or you're traveling abroad, getting from point A to point B as a volunteer is kind of a huge issue. Um, how did you approach that problem? I mean, I, I walked a ton. Like, I, I was training for a marathon, so I was totally down to just walk everywhere. Okay. And I ran a whole lot, walked a whole lot. I mean, my first week, I ended up walking, like, 65 kilometers or something like that, just walking around the city. Um, the public transportation, and, and it's like, I wish I would have gotten more experience in more rural areas mm-hmm. of Zambia, just because I know that that is, is dramatically different than, mm-hmm. than Lusaka, which is the capital city. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I never had any issues getting around. There's always there's taxis all over the place. Um, there's there were buses everywhere. The bus system was great. Mm-hmm. Um, you could get around. You could get pretty much anywhere in the city from any other point in the city for like ten kwacha, which is about a dollar. Okay. Um, by bus, so that isn't as much of a challenge in Lusaka. But like, I went over to Livingstone, which is right outside of right. It's the city closest to Victoria Falls, like okay. one of the wow. seven natural wonders. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. I would absolutely recommend, either from the Zambia side or the Zimbabwe side. You went? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. It was, it was insane. Wow. Um, but that city, that town city um, was dramatically different, like much more challenging to get around. Um, public transportation stopped at like 5 p.m. Wow. kind of thing. Okay. So I guess... Um, one of the last questions I have is do you have like a certain mental algorithm that you go through when you are presented a problem that you have no idea how to solve at the first hand because I feel like that's one of the life lessons kids learn when they go volunteer abroad is like you have no idea how to even solve this problem there's no basis for you to go off of How how do you go about that in, in, thing. With some things, I went through like a, a mental flow chart almost, where like first I would look at something, would, I, would, I would encounter something, and I can't really think of any uh, insightful examples off the top of my head, but things like, or that I would think about it is like, okay, I'm experiencing this problem, and then I would stop for a second, I was like, wait, is this actually a problem? Or am I just feeling uncomfortable? And then oh, it feels like a problem. Cool. So then I'd stop and check, like, is this is is this a real problem? If yes, then go on to the next part. If no, chill out. Cool. Like, um, but I mean, it, the most of the 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 not critical thinking requiring problems, um, I could just talk with other people, and they were they were super helpful. Um, yeah. They were very very excited to help out. Um, there were some things that like. 
that probably I did not address in, in a way that I should have or like I, I wasn't as prudent like the the second day I was there the country went into a declared or the government declared a state of emergency that's great <laughs> there was perfect like, timing yeah which I was actually very thankful because if it happened before you wouldn't have uh, been it would have been able to, to yeah it wow. might have made it more challenging for me to go so they declared a state of emergency for what for this these widespread arson attacks of like these arsonists um, just destroying public spaces and that I like really did not think that that would impede any of the things I wanted to do because to me like oh who cares it's a state of emergency kind of thing um I can still probably get around, but it's like traffic was horrible. You couldn't go anywhere. Everything got so blocked up. And so trying, really trying to work with locals to figure out like, well, like really what are, like are these, are these repercussions really going to play into effect while I'm here kind of a thing? Yeah. Cause yeah. I feel in our government, we say like, so-and-so is happening and you're like, great. It's not going to affect us. Exactly. You know, especially here like, in Montana. It's yeah. like, uh, nah, we're part of the Canada. Like, thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think that's a particularly great example of like having to try to solve a problem. I think a lot of the reasons why I really enjoyed Zambia was I always tried to carry like an, an, an idea of like positive regard. Even if I'm experiencing something that to me is frustrating, to experience it in a way that, well, even though this is frustrating for me, perhaps it is a part of something better. Like looking at, I mean, and I feel like we, we experience these sorts of things all the time as our natural default setting is to either, is to think more about ourselves, you know, like right. this is taking up my time or something like that. And to really try to look at those things as, as a learning experience, as, as a thing that we're, I have total, the only thing that's, that's absolutely true about that scenario is that I get to decide how I experience it, what, how I think about it. Yeah. Um, which I think made my experience very different than many of the other expats that I had to watch come through yeah. in the, the revolving door of white volunteers. Especially because it's not a vacation spot. Right. You know, so you can't go there being like, yeah, everything's going to be great. I think that's really interesting and unconditional positive regard. So pretty much, no matter what's going on, I'm going to believe that, you know, in the next couple of days it'll be a good, it'll be yeah, a good thing. Yeah, like there'll be something really cool about it. And I, and I definitely feel that way about all the things now. Like yeah. now it's like really added richness to my experience and to why I feel comfortable yeah. going back again totally by myself. Went back. You're going all by yourself. Yep. You haven't found like a bunch of kids that are like, yeah, let's go to, you know, let's let's go learn about cancer in Zambia. I've I've talked to some, and they, I think they kind of wanted me to help them fund themselves. Mm. And I was like, I can barely fund myself. So Dude, I, I can how. barely buy food. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I, I mean, I was like, yeah, if you guys come, yeah. I'd be happy to like train you on the the interview mm -hmm. methods I'm going to use. And things how like much that, does a but. flight cost? Now I'm interested because yeah. now I'm like trying to do math yeah. in my head. It depends. When I went, it was like just there and back was like sixteen hundred. Okay. Um, wow. It ended up being closer to like twenty one hundred because I went back and spent five days in Germany, okay. about ten days in Germany. Um, so then, like that multi city made it a little bit more expensive. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's like similar to going from here to like Japan or or India, not as cheap as like. To South America, like, right? Where you can get like a good, good eight hundred dollar yeah. ticket, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in, in, even as a tourist location, I mean, Lusaka is awesome. 
the food is awesome. Zambian food is very good, and uh, people are very hospitable and excited to to hang out with with Americans and <laughs> talk about Trump. They really? love they love talking about Trump. No way. They love it. They're not excited about it. They don't. They aren't happy about it, but they're very excited to hear about it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well. I mean that's cool. I, I'm kind of mad that he's had that much influence. <laughs> oh yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was it was like, oh yeah, it was constant. Constantly yeah. heard about it. Wow, that's so cool. Um, so then I know we were talking in class today, and you mentioned something about trying to get a film started or get a movie or a documentary. Oh yeah. Do so we just give a little blurb on that. And sure. Okay. We are in the. Time Team and Friends is in the middle of a film contest to try to win $10,000. And it's through this organization called Every Footstep Counts. And if you're interested and you want to vote, you can just go on to everyfootstepcounts.com. Uh, there's just, they'll have all the listings of all the, the films that are competing. Ours is called uh, like The Power of Positivity or The Power of Positive Thinking. What it's called, which is ironic because it's like unconditional positive regard, yes. but okay. And it's cool. it's it's awesome. It's a it's an mostly it's an interview sort of thing with one of our community volunteers. So one of the other things that makes Time Tune Friends so so strong as an organization is this network of community volunteers. I mean, if you go into some compounds are between like fifty thousand to hundred thousand people, and there is no address, there's no roads, no numbers on houses or anything like that, and you have to find like one one patient, you know, uh, to check up on like how they're doing or you, or we might get a call that's like this person's really, really sick and they're not at their house, nobody knows where they are. So there are these community volunteers that are all women, they're all just like these way kick-ass women that volunteer their time and are like these like puppet masters of the, of the compounds and know where people are moving, know where people are at and can help us get directly to the, and help the okay. social workers get directly to the, uh, to the patient wow, to be able to amazing. check out what's going on. It's, yeah, it absolutely, totally changes the game. Wow, that's amazing. And so that's what the, that's what our little film is about. It's about four minutes long, very okay. short. Four minutes, all right. Yeah, yeah um, cool. And I guess the last question I want to ask is um, what, like after this summer, do you think, like what's the next plan if everything works the way you think it will? everything works uh hopefully try and publish the findings uh in the fall uh graduate in may probably take two years off um before applying for med school and and or mph mm -hmm. uh to go back and do like a a much longer term study um really looking at barriers and looking at those challenges um, particularly that I'm really interested in doing an MD-PhD, which requires a lot of uh, research background that they'd like to see. Right. Um, maybe do, keep doing the chemistry, the organic chemistry research I'm doing now um, that I'm not that interested in, but right. it's also it's important. <laughs> yeah. It's carbohydrate chemistry, building fancy sugars. Cool. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> no pun intended. Yes, we do that all the time. It's constant. <laughs> Um, okay, cool. And then, last question, I promise. Um, okay. What is something people can do to, to kind of 
in a personal everyday practice kind of a thing to kind of mitigate the challenges you experienced while you were abroad. So like what can students that are traveling or volunteering, what can they do to kind of go up to a situation, approach it with respect and dignity and positive regard? I think the first thing that was that shook me a little bit in trying to figure these things out was recognizing that good intentions aren't everything. You know, we okay. can have really good intentions about where we're going and still do harm. Yeah. Wow. And and it can still be unethical. And to really think about think about our actions critically, think about what we're doing critically, think think about even when you're there, where you buy things from. Think about what you pay for things. How much are you willing to haggle? How much are you willing to barter? Like really considering that by having the ability to travel outside of your own nation's borders, you are among the elite and privileged of the world. Even if you're a broke college kid, yeah. you know, like it's it's such an incredible privilege to be able to leave yeah. your nation's borders, and that so many people around the world rare will either never leave their country and may even in some instances rarely leave their community, and wow. to be able to think about traveling ten thousand miles in a big flying metal tube. Right. that is polluting the world and things like that. I mean, it's, it, it, I think, yeah, I think just that, that recognition of humility, uh, acting in humility and recognizing that that is a, a powerful privilege and that there, there's a lot of weight that comes from an American traveling somewhere else. Yeah, and kind of realizing, like, maybe you need to really pre-examine your actions. Yeah, it, it evaluate your intentions what are you going for? Yeah. Wow. Thanks, Joey. I appreciate you sitting down in the middle of dead week and no, talking so to much. me. And, um, yeah, EMT. Is that right? Yep. Great volunteer in the ER. Yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. I haven't, haven't been back in a while. While, while you were there. Yeah. Great researcher in Zambia. Not Zimbabwe, Zambia. Not Zimbabwe. Student studying history and health and this is sampler platter what what is what is the term for it uh sets sets so science environment technology and society okay. okay cool well thanks appreciate it yeah thank you so much it was an, it was an honor yeah it was a lot of fun all right guys that's it for today just want to say a big thanks to everyone at the trio office here on montana state university campus elizabeth Merrim, megan doyle julian collins and all the students that come in the office. It, you guys are really what kind of propelled this whole project. And a big thanks to Dr. Katie Woods for her global health class. That class is kind of the inspiration behind this whole show. And Dr. Woods is an amazing doctor, great person, great teacher. Um, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it.